You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hey, it's Motley Fool Money co-host Dylan Lewis here. If you're listening to us, it's because you love following the stock market and learning about business stories. If you're looking to keep learning and unlocking your potential, then you should check out the Think Fast, Talk Smart podcast produced by our friends over at the Stanford Graduate School of Business. Think Fast, Talk Smart is the Webby Award-winning best business podcast that's received nearly 43 million downloads and is the number one career podcast in 95-plus countries, so you know it's worth your time. Each week, host and Stanford lecturer Matt Abraham sits down with experts to discuss the best tips to hone and develop your communication skills, from making small talk that leaves a big impression, to keeping your nerves in check while speaking, to being more persuasive. Whether you're working on your elevator pitch or planning an important meeting, Strong communication skills are important in business and life in general. That's why you'll hear from pros like neuroscientist Andrew Huberman on how to manage speaking anxiety, as well as speechwriter, best-selling author, and friend of the fool Dan Pink on how to take risks in your communication, and psychologist Kelly McGonigal on how to harness nervous energy to fuel powerful presentations. All that and so much more available on the Think Fast Talk Smart podcast. So what are you waiting for? Listen every Tuesday, wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube. Hey everyone, I'm Jean Chatsky. Thank you so much for joining us today on Her Money. I was thinking about how quickly we are headed toward episode 300. I cannot believe that I just said that. Episode 300 of the Her Money podcast. And that is not including our bonus mailbags. And we will hit that mark before the end of 2021, which is so hard to believe. We couldn't do it without all of you. So thank you so much for listening. Thank you for recommending this show to your friends and your family, as we know so many of you have done. Our mission when we started back in 2016 was the same as it is today, to level the playing field for financial confidence and power for all women. And I think all of us, unfortunately, have probably had the experience of being talked down to when it comes to money. Maybe it was a financial advisor you tried out, maybe a friend or a family member who assumed that you just wouldn't know as much as they did. But here's the thing. This sort of condescension is not unique to the financial industry. There are countless fields that for decades have been male-dominated, and when a woman walks in to claim her rightful place or to negotiate or to ask a question, it's not always easy. The reception isn't always warm and welcoming, and today we're going to talk about another one of those spaces and how to hold our own and get what we came for. We are going to talk about cars, and I am so excited about this show because we need it now more than ever. Car prices on both new and used vehicles are up by 30% since the start of the pandemic in March of 2020, and today they are at an all-time high. According to the Kelly Blue Book, the average transaction price on new cars, it's more than 42 thousand dollars and used cars are hovering at an average of around twenty five thousand dollars and that's for a car with about seventy thousand miles on it 
I think that we've all seen those horrible, cheesy commercials around the holidays where the husband presents his wife with a set of new car keys and then she walks outside in her silk robe with her golden retriever to find a beautiful new car parked in the driveway, all tied up with a big red bow. Those commercials have always driven me nuts because women buy or jointly purchase 85% of all cars. We buy 65% and we influence another 20% of all car sales, spending $500 billion on cars every year. And yet just 27% of the jobs in the automotive industry are held by women. It's really clear we have some work to do, and we're going to dive into it all today with Scotty Reese. She is founder and CEO of A Girl's Guide to Cars, a website that is empowering women to be smarter, happier car owners by arming them with car information. Launched in 2013, A Girl's Guide to Cars is now the number one automotive site for women. It reaches about 2 million consumers a month, and... 35% of their audience is male. Scotty, so good to see you. Nice to see you too, Jean. It's so good to be here and to talk about cars. And I have to say, I love your mission. It's so well aligned with ours, and that is to help consumers feel empowered and feel confident when it comes to making a car purchase, which is like finance and like so many other things can be really difficult really difficult. And I had earlier in my life, one of those experiences when I went to buy a car, which I was buying with my money. And the car salesman said to me, well, where's your husband? You know, we can't negotiate until your husband shows up. And I walked out of that dealership and never went back to that dealership. Please tell me the right move. That was please tell me that it's changed. Well, I'd love to tell you that it's changed and it has a little bit, but not enough. Not We don't buy cars the same way we buy houses or kitchens or handbags or any of the other things that we become financially and emotionally invested in. We buy cars very differently. And actually, if you had asked me two years ago, what would it take to have car dealers change the way they do business? I probably would have said something like a pandemic. (laughs) And it's true. (laughs) But things haven't changed enough. And they haven't changed in the most consumer friendly way. Things are getting better. Dealers do recognize that women are important car buyers, and they're much friendlier to women, I think, in general today than they were maybe five or 10 years ago. But you still have to be your own advocate, and you still have to do your homework, because they'll be very pleasant and smile at you and still not give you the best deal or be transparent about the process or give you a fair offer and a trade-in. So you really need to know what you're doing. And find a dealer, you were right to walk away from the dealer that insulted you because there is a dealer out there who will work with you, who will be fair and who won't insult you. But you have to do a little searching sometimes. What's your car story? What inspired you (laughs) to start a girl's guide? So actually, I turned the idea down in the beginning because it was suggested to me to write about cars. And my instant reaction was the car industry is not friendly to females. So I don't want any part of that. It's offensive. It's set up to be exclusionary to keep women out. 
and there were no female leaders. It was right before Mary Barra became the CEO of General Motors. There were very few female employees and almost no female leaders. And so it seemed like a really tough, unwelcome place. But then I looked at those statistics, the purchase statistics, and it just struck me as of all the consumer sectors, the one with the greatest imbalance. And so, of course, you know, being a person who likes a challenge, I thought, well, okay, let's give it a shot. What surprised me was how the appetite of the major manufacturers, the um, incredible desire that they have to bring more women into not only the retail side as consumers, but also bring them in as employees. And it's something that they've struggled with for a long time. And so part of it is that the conversation is just not geared to women, pardon the pun. Cars are not discussed on women's terms. So still the terms, and you, you hear it in the ads and you hear it in the conversations and they talk about the zero to 60 and the torque and the horsepower and the this and that and the other that do not matter to me if I have three kids in car seats. Right. <laughs> I don't really care about too much torque will make those three children throw up. So I, you know, their interest, that enthusiastic interest is something that it, to me is a totally different thing. And so changing that conversation to the things that matter to women, how easy is it to install those car seats? How easy is it to get in and out of? Why is it that we like SUVs? Why should I pay more for an SUV? Because they do cost more. Why should I justify that in my household budget, a car that's really comfortable to me versus one that maybe is a few thousand dollars less, but is going to cost me money at the chiropractor because the seats aren't comfortable for me. So understanding those things are really empowering. And when you know not only the why behind the car that you want that fits your life, but also the figuring out the car that fits your budget and meets in those two places, to me, that's really the ideal. And so my most recent car story is exactly that. We bought a car for our daughter, who's a sophomore in college. And she goes to school in Colorado. She needed an all-wheel drive. We want her to have an SUV because, as you know, in snowy places, the snow plows leave these big mounds of snow that if you have an all-wheel drive, you know, sedan, a a small sedan, or even a front-wheel drive is probably going to be capable, but you're still going to get stuck behind those snow mounds. So we felt like she needed the confidence of an SUV, the higher ground clearance. And then kids moving college apartments and dorms and things like that. They move every year. So you want a car that can accommodate their stuff. You don't want them filling it to the roof with things that might be dangerous if they're in a collision that would fly at their head. So those were some of the things that we considered. It's a very tight car market and cars are more expensive than they were a couple of years ago. So we let her pick some of the features. She really wanted leather seats and a panoramic sunroof. And I don't blame her at all. I think those are two very good things to have. So we said, well, that puts us at a few thousand dollars over our budget. Will you pay for that? And so she did. So she got a job and she's paying for part of that car payment. So uh, we're not on the hook for all of it. But she got the car she wanted. And we looked at cars that were priced, and we were talking about a used car, $10,000 more than the car we paid for. So our experience is pick the features that you want, decide what's really important, prioritize that list, and then start shopping. And we had to kiss a few frogs. We bought a used car. So we looked at Carvana, we looked at 
Vroom, we looked at mm-hmm. Shift, we looked at local dealers in our area for this one particular car. We ended up getting it through CarMax and having it relocated to a different location where we were able to go and, and pick it up. And the nice thing about CarMax is they do give you a 90-day warranty. And the car that we bought actually had two and a half years left on the warranty, which was on my wish list. I wanted (laughs) to know that there was a warranty on the car. So we were able to get the car we wanted at what we felt like was a comfortable price. And I like the sort of very straightforward process that CarMax has. So no haggling. If you know what something is worth, you don't really need to negotiate. We're going to dig into how to know what something is worth before we end this show. I want to make sure everybody knows that. But before we do, let's talk about the market right now. I mean, cars are going for much higher prices than they have ever before, in part because of this chip shortage. They can't make the new cars, so the used cars are are going for more money. If you think that you want a car, is waiting a couple of months going to do the trick? Do we expect this to end anytime soon? So they're talking about the second half of 2022. So really, probably six to nine months before this shortage eases. I don't expect prices to come down. I expect them to level out to stop going up. That's typically what happens in consumer markets when prices with a few exceptions, gas will go up and down. But, you know, very few things, the prices will come down, especially a hefty price tag commodity like cars. Now, within that, there are definitely nuances and some things that you might look for as things that we're not seeing now, like manufacturer incentives and zero finance. I am seeing some zero finance offers, but not many of them. And there are still deals out there. There are still good prices out there, you really have to find the dealer, the brand and the dealer that has inventory that they're trying to move. So it's even though it's generally that's true, there are deals on things, you just have to find the right one. And it just takes some homework, some legwork to look around and and see what's out there. But in terms of waiting, honestly, if you could live with your car for another year, do it. it. This is not the time to do it because you may end up getting just a lot more for your money a year from now too. Yeah, absolutely. All right. So let's dive in. We've broken this into a few categories. We're going to talk about buying new and in there we can talk about leasing. We're going to talk about buying used. We're going to mm-hmm. talk about getting rid of your old car because that's some place where you can actually make some money these days. You've said if you can wait, you should wait. And I'm totally with you on that. But if you're not, where should you look to pick up one of these deals? Somebody once told me that the best strategy that you can have as a car buyer is to try to pick the category of car, but be agnostic about the brand of car. Absolutely. Do your homework, pick the features that you want and that you need and prioritize them. What are you willing to give up. You know, you might say, oh, I really need leather seats, but do you really need leather seats? Do you really need all-wheel drive? If you really need all-wheel drive, don't compromise on that. But the truth is, pretty much any feature, leather seats, panoramic sunroof, all-wheel drive, you can find that in a Mercedes-Benz for $140,000, or you can find it in a Kia for $20,000. So you have a pretty wide range of prices there to look at. You also need to consider how many passengers you really need. Do you really need a third row or is that a wish list item? 
if you do occasionally need a third row or you need that space, again, that's something that you can go to the Kia route and find something that costs half of, say, an Acura or, you know, a more expensive wish list car. And even the value players these days, they make really beautiful cars. You might even think about going the value route and then upgrading to the top level trim. Whereas maybe at the luxury route, you might really be only thinking about the entry level. So in many of these cars, one of the things that I would look at is the JD Power initial quality, because a lot of them really do great on the initial quality. And the other thing to consider is these cars last a long time these days. You know, it used to be cars were only good for like 70, 80, 90,000 miles. Now they're averaging well over 200,000 miles in a lifetime. So you're making an investment in something that you can keep for a long time that's probably going to last very well over that long time. So when you're thinking about this versus that, we think of it as buy this, not that especially in a market like this. So if you really, really, really want the, I'll, I'll give you, I'll toss out one of the most popular cars on the road is the Toyota 4Runner. Mm-hmm. It's really rugged, it's four-wheel drive, and it gives you that sense of excitement of the great things that you're going to do on the weekend, even though most people don't ever drive them off-road. But if you want to, you can. So think about the competitors in that category that are also four-wheel drive. I think immediately of many options in the Jeep family that are going to be less expensive than a Toyota 4Runner. The Nissan Pathfinder, another really good option. They build a beautiful car. It lasts a long time. It's rugged and very capable. So there are a lot of options for that very highly sought after Toyota 4Runner. And you might think about buying something that's used rather Mm -hmm. than brand new. So used cars are a great option right now. I want to get to that in just a second. But before we do, when you go to look at the price of the car, how negotiable is it these days? I mean, I can go online when I got my last car and I'm driving a 2015 Volvo wagon, which I love. It has 77,000 miles on it. I'm going to drive this thing till it dies. It's a great car. But I remember when I was getting it going online and essentially building the car and getting a price for that car. And I did get a little bit off of that price because this was my second or third Volvo. I had some incentive dollars built in. But how negotiable is it, actually? So there are a couple of things that you should look at. There's three things really that you should be looking at in terms of the price of the car and ignore everything else for right now. Don't think about financing. Don't think about trade-in. Don't think about down payment. You just want to focus on the price of the car. So the first thing that you want to look at is the manufacturer's MSRP. So you go to the Volvo site and you look at what is the MSRP of that car. And let's just say it's $40,000. And the manufacturer's MSRP is the advice that they give to the dealer, what the dealer should sell that car for. The dealer can sell it for under, or they can sell it for over. It really depends on the situation in their marketplace. And they're the ones who get to decide what they sell the car for. So that's the first thing that you should look at. The second thing that you should understand is that The MSRP is not what they paid for the car. What they paid for the car is on the invoice. And in a 
and not tight market, not a crazy market. So the way things were a year, year and a half ago, you could go to pretty much any dealer and say, I'd like to see the invoice on that car. And so say that $40,000 car, the invoice might be $36,000. That would be the beginning of your negotiation point. And so ideally, the dealer would sell you that car at $36,000 or perhaps even a little bit less because they're making money other places. So they get a bonus from the manufacturer for the number of cars sold. So that old adage of buy at the end of the month or the end of the quarter or the end of the year really does help because that's when their cutoff date is for being assessed for how many cars they sold and how big of a bonus they get from the manufacturer. So the end of the month or the end of the quarter, they may be more willing to take a little money off of that price and get down towards or even below their invoice price to be able to sell that car because they'll make it back from the manufacturer in other ways. They also are counting on getting some service business from you if you're financing the car Whether or not you finance through them, if you're financing the car, they'll make money on the financing. So if you're financing the car, they may be a little more negotiable. And then the third thing that you should look at is what the dealer is asking for the car. So if the MSRP is $40,000 and they're asking $42,000, but you know that the invoice should be somewhere around $36,000, so maybe there's a lot of demand for that car. In that case, you might look at, well, I see that you've got four of them on the lot that are that really beautiful pearly white color and then you have one that's a mustard yellow will you make a deal (laughs) with me for the mustard yellow one and chances are if that car has been sitting there for some time that they will and there are sometimes ways that you can find out how long a car has been on the lot some listings will show that it's been there for a while and sometimes you can just ask or you go by you know two weeks later and see if it's still there and if it's still there then they're paying interest on the loan that they use to buy that car. So at that point, once a car gets to 30 days on the lot, the dealers become a little more negotiable. So it's sort of like anything else. You know, it's the the last mustard-colored dress on the rack that has been, you know, you saw it at Nordstrom two weeks ago, and you go two weeks from now, and it's still there. You can pretty much guess that they're going to put it on the sale rack pretty soon. You can ask somebody to put it aside for you, and then when it gets marked down, it's yours at the discount. So same kind of strategies work in negotiating for a car. I love it. I love it. (laughs) Is there a time at which it makes sense to lease rather than buy, and is this one of those times? Good question. I would say now probably is not a great time to lease, and I'm not a huge fan of leasing anyway. I think leasing works for a couple of very specific reasons. One, you work for yourself or a company that is leasing a car for you and it's a business expense, so basically you get a free car. I think that's an instance where leasing works. I also think it makes sense for someone who's getting their first car and has no credit. And so you can get a lower price payment or you don't have the down payment you can afford. Now, remember, a lease comes with some money that you have to put down at the beginning and often There's money that you have to pay at the end to turn the car back in. And if you go over the mileage allowance, then you have to pay for the mileage. So as long as you understand the terms of the lease and it is something that makes sense for you, like I'm basically paying half the lease payment that I would pay for a purchase payment or a loan payment, 
And that's really what I can afford right now until I get my credit built up and I have some money for a down payment on a car, then it would make sense. So I think it makes sense for first time buyers and others who have some special exception. But for right now, even though prices are higher, if you have a down payment, if you have a trade in, I would say the better thing is to find the car with the features you want at the price you can afford because they're still out there. Not everybody really needs a Mercedes Benz. No, they don't. I would say most of the time or much of the time you can get that car used as well. I mean, I'm with you. I'm, I'm a big fan, particularly of certified used cars where I know I've got good warranty protection. When you're going to buy a used car, how's the strategy in terms of figuring out what the price should be and how much is negotiable different? So the great thing about used cars is there's a lot of data out there for you as the car buyer to research and to kind of put into the hopper and know that whether or not you're getting a good deal. And that's because pretty much every car that you would buy, unless it's like the old, you know, antique unicorn of a car, pretty much any car you would be in the market for, there probably are anywhere from dozens to hundreds or maybe even thousands of that same model for sale around the country at the same time. There are ways the cars get to the used market. They are rental cars that rotate through the fleet and then they're sold. Those tend to have not the best features, but they're well cared for. Then there are the leases. You know, the car manufacturers will come out with a new model year, and then they put a bunch of them on the lot, and then they lease them. And so three years later, guess what? Those cars all come back for sale. So there's, you know, you're flooded with those off-lease models when they come in. And then there are people who are upgrading and are ready to get out of the three-row SUV and into something more compact and efficient. And so then you start to see those come in as families go through those transitions, so or as people go through those transitions. And then there's like just the people who just only ever lease because they always want a brand new top-of-the-line luxury car. They're just settled with the fact they're always going to have a car payment. And so they trade in their car every three years. So any car that you're looking for in the used car market, you can find a really good representative sample of what pricing is for the trim you want, for the features you want, pretty much anywhere around the country. So you can look, I'm in Texas, I can look in Texas, but I can also see what how they're pricing them in Florida and California and Chicago and the Northeast. And I can kind of get a representative sample of what those prices look like and know whether or not the prices at the dealership near me are fair. And then you can also go to those dealers and negotiate a deal with any of those dealers and they will ship cars. So if I know that the car that I want is uh, $2,000 more here than it is say in Dallas, a hundred miles away, then I can negotiate with the dealer in Dallas and save myself $2,000. Okay negotiating. This (laughs) is big. And it's big whether you're buying used. It's big whether you're buying new. I want to know the words. I want to know what is, you know, this is not an area in which women have typically had a ton of confidence. And that's not just a car negotiation. It's a lot of different negotiations. So think about it for a second. And when we come back, we're going to script it out just a little bit. Hey everybody, it's Jean. If you want to continue unlocking your potential, then you should also check out Think Fast, Talk Smart, produced by our friends at Stanford Graduate School of Business. 
Think Fast Talk Smart is the Webby Award-winning best business podcast that received nearly 50 million downloads. It's the number one career podcast in 95 countries, so you know it's worth your time. Each week, host and Stanford lecturer Matt Abraham sits down with experts to discuss the best tips to hone and develop your communication skills, from making small talk that leaves a big impression to keeping your nerves in check while speaking to being more persuasive. Whether you're working on your elevator pitch or planning an important meeting, strong communication skills are critical to business. All that and so much more is available on Think Fast, Talk Smart. Listen every Tuesday wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube. I'm talking with Scotty Reese, the founder of A Girl's Guide to Cars, the top automotive site for women. Okay, so I'm going to buy a car and I'm stealing my nerve. I know I have to negotiate because chances are I can do better. Maybe not always, maybe not in this market, but chances are decent that I can do even a little bit better than the price that is on the piece of paper. Question number one, do I want to go see these people in person or do I just want like an internet hands-off transaction? Is that better for me, particularly as a woman? I think that you always need to talk with real people and maybe it's a phone call or a video call or something like that if you want to negotiate it. If it's somebody in your neighborhood, you know, nearby, I recommend going and doing it in person. Let's step back a little bit though. The real secret to negotiating is to know what you want and to ask for it. And it's very, very clear and very simple. This is what I want. So I'll give you a couple of little examples. So if you decide that you want a car that, and you've, you've seen the car on the manufacturer site and it has these particular features, it has a panoramic sunroof and it has leather seats and you know what the price is, you know what the MSRP is on it and you think that they have that car in their lot. So we're not talking price yet, we're just talking product. Price doesn't matter if you're not getting the right thing. And so you say, I'm interested in this car with this trim and it has these features and I believe you have one on your lot, I'd like to take a test drive. And then you get there and it's not the one that you wanted. If they don't have it, maybe they just pulled the wrong car up. But if they don't have it, and it happens all the time, it's happened to us even recently where we thought we were negotiating for a car that the dealer actually didn't have because they will say to get you to come in and talk with them, they'll say they have what you're looking for when they don't actually. And I find it all the time, all the time, where they say it has a feature that it doesn't have. And sometimes I think it's just, you know, them trying to bait and switch you. But I think sometimes too, it's just honest mistakes. Cars are filled with literally thousands of details. And sometimes the, the person checking off the list and the paperwork makes a mistake or doesn't really know what these things are. And so that happens. But make sure that you're looking at and considering the car that you want. The next thing is to know what that car costs. And the next thing is to know is how you're going to pay for it and what you qualify for. And this happened to me where I had the car, had the features that I wanted. It was on the lot. I knew it was on the dealer's lot. Actually, price negotiations on used cars are almost unheard of now. I bought three used cars in the last three years and none of them were negotiable on price. They were priced 
to the penny of all their, the same model all over the country. The price was just the price. The marketplace just kind of sets these prices. They would not negotiate with me, but it was the car that I wanted and I was fine with the price. So it seemed fair to me. So we sat down to do the paperwork and the interest rate that they pulled up and the terms of the payment, I wanted a four-year loan at a I was approved for a particular interest rate, and they gave me a five-year loan at a much higher interest rate. And I said, no, 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 this is, and I actually had an app on my phone that had the finance deal, because I was financing through a third party, not through the dealer. And I said, nope, I showed them the phone. This is what my bank is giving me. And so they had to rewrite the paperwork. And they actually had to rewrite the paperwork several times. So the negotiation really is, I wouldn't even consider it so much of a negotiation anymore. And I'll tell you where I do think there's a negotiation. I wouldn't consider it so much a negotiation anymore as knowing what you want and making sure that you get it and saying so when you don't think that you're getting the thing that it is that you want or what you came there for. Now, there can be negotiations if there's something on the car you don't want. So they might say, oh, we've done this VIN etching. That's like kind of a popular one where they'll etch the VIN number into different places on the car so that if it's stolen, it's easy to identify and then they charge you, uh, I don't know, 500 or or $1,000 or something for it. And you can say, no, I don't want that. I'm not going to pay for that. And so they maybe will take that off the price. And there might be some other things that are negotiable. Usually document fees are not negotiable. There's a few other things, but they may have added some equipment, some, you know, fancy car mats or something like that. And you might say, well, I don't really want to pay for those. You can take them out. And then they might say, well, I'm not going to, I don't have another car to put them in. So I'll give them to you. So, you know, those things might be negotiable. They may be able to offer you a better interest rate on a loan. So that's definitely something that you should ask. I've had a car dealer give me a better interest rate than my bank. So you want to compare those, you want to compare the terms, and you want to know if there's any other gotchas, is there any fees that you have to pay? Your bank will tell you very clearly any fees that you have to pay. You want to make sure that you know that if you're considering going with dealer financing. But sometimes the dealer can offer you a better deal. Sometimes they can offer 0% financing over term three or four years, which is nice because a car loan with absolutely no interest Payments on it is great. Usually they're very short. So it's the monthly payment is still high, but you only pay it for three years. So that's nice. And that can be a negotiable thing. Sometimes they'll say, well, if you'll take our financing, we'll take $1,000 off the price of the car. So there are just different things you have to kind of once you've figured out that this is the deal you're going to do, then the negotiation comes in those fine details. How are we doing this deal? And is there anything on this car I really don't want? The grand scheme of things, you really want a transaction that doesn't make you lose sleep at night. And so you want to feel confident in the people that you're doing business with. You want to have done your homework. The reason you're losing sleep at night over something like this is because you haven't done your homework. And you go to sleep and you just know they're pulling something over on you. And they may or may not be. But if you haven't done your homework, you don't know. And that's where people get really anxious about a car purchase because they just don't know because they haven't really broken down all the details. So, But once you've done that, if anything else is thrown into the mix that's a surprise, you'll see it because that wasn't there when you did your homework or that wasn't something that came up before. Don't be afraid to ask for explanations on things and even things that 
you know, terms that they'll toss around, you know, all day long, you know, MSRP, what is MSRP? Mm-hmm. Don't be afraid to ask those questions because they need to explain that to you and they don't want you to walk out. They want you to sign this paperwork. They want to sell you that car. So don't be afraid to ask even the simplest questions and don't feel like there's somebody told me the other day, here's another add on that you don't need. You probably don't need an extended warranty. That was my next question. (laughs) Well, but particularly with used cars, right? If you're getting a used car, like with a new car, you don't need it. Like I I don't think you ever need it. But with a used car, sometimes I think about, well, if I'm planning on keeping this for a very long time, should I get it? And can I always just get it later? So I'm not one to recommend extended warranties pretty much ever. I think you're better off taking that money and investing it and then having a rainy day fund to fix your car. And if repairs pop up more than three times and they're pricey, get rid of the car. An extended warranty is designed to cover things that it will never have to cover and will cover less as the car gets older it doesn't cover everything to begin with. So you really have to look at the extended warranty and see what it is going to cover. Every time I've looked at them, I found that they're not worth it. Like it's going to cover stuff that who knows if that thing will ever break. And it's Murphy's law. The thing that breaks, it's not covered mm-hmm. is, you know, that's what's going to happen to me. And then sometimes the deductible is really high, like, oh, well, it'll cover the water pump, but the deductible is $1,500. The water pump's only $1,100. So it's not even going to help you. So I'm not a fan of them. I think when it comes to warranties and a used car, try to buy a car that has some of the original manufacturer's warranty on it. And if you're buying a car that's three or four years old, you can. And we did. We bought a Volkswagen. It has a six-year warranty. We have two and a half years left on the warranty. Kia and Hyundai and Genesis have five-year warranties. So they have a 10-year powertrain warranty. That does not transfer to the new owner. Some years it does and some years it doesn't. And I think right now they're in a it doesn't mode. So good to know. But understand what the original manufacturer's warranty is. And then maybe you can buy it from a dealer that will give you an extended warranty under their own. So there are dealership groups that will offer you a warranty for the life of the car as long as you go back to that dealership group. I know that we have several of them here in Texas that are, it's stunning to me that they do it, but they'll do it because they want you to keep coming back to deal with them. So they want to buy that car back from you when you don't want to drive it anymore. And they want to sell you your next car when you decide it's time to uh, trade up. So speaking of buying that next car back, I mean, that's where the value is these days. If you're an empty nester like we are and you've got a car that's extra just sitting around because your kids are no longer here to drive it, now's a really good time to unload it. What are the rules when you're on the flip side for getting the best price for your car? So the first thing you need to do is get an independent evaluation. Take it to CarMax is a good place to go or you can go to any dealer who's buying cars, you'll probably get notes in the mail from your the dealer that you purchased the car from telling you they want to buy it. Just go get an appraisal and see what it's worth. I would say do the basics that it takes to make the car look good. You don't necessarily need to replace the tires, but you might want to replace the windshield wipers, give it a good detailing, maybe like a fresh oil change. Just, you know, check it out and make sure there's nothing really wrong with it. 
No major repairs are due. That little bit of legwork will maximize the value. But the CarMax is a good place to go because they actually just out and out buy cars. And they give a pretty good, and they'll just write you a check right there. They'll just take you in the office and sit there and write you a check. And they give a pretty good pay scale on the used cars that they buy. And that way, when you go into your dealer and you're negotiating, you negotiate on the price of the car and you're all set. And now they're going to evaluate your trade-in and say that they they say, okay, we're going to buy this Volvo from Eugene and we're going to give you $12,000. And you say, well, CarMax just gave me an offer for $14,000. So can you match that? Because if they can't, go to CarMax and sell your car there. In my opinion, that is really the way to go, is to deal with one of these companies that they have a process. You don't have to worry about a check bouncing or that kind of thing, or going to the bank with a a private buyer and getting a cashier's check and that kind of thing. It's a little bit easier, but you can still go that route. And a lot of people do still sell their cars on Craigslist. And there are definitely our protocols. There definitely is a, a rule book for selling your car on Craigslist. It's one of our top stories on A Girl's Guide to Cars. So you can go over there and see how to sell your car on Craigslist and a lot of comments from readers too, with even more advice. But you can definitely sell it as a third party and that's something that I don't think that you should definitely rule out if you're not getting, if, if your car is a unicorn, say it's maybe 25 or 30 years old, and maybe you've done some special modifications to it, then you might really want to go to someplace like Craigslist or bring a trailer or one of these vintage car sites. You don't want to just go and turn it over to CarMax because they probably will not value it well. Would you buy on Craigslist? Yes and no. Again, it depends on the car. If you know what you're doing, and by the way, one of the absolute non-negotiable things that you should do when you're buying a car is have a car vetted by an independent mechanic. And so if you're buying on Craigslist, you just need to make sure that the title is clean, that the person that you're buying it from owns the title. You want to be sure that mechanically it's sound. You can take it to an independent mechanic and have it evaluated. You want to make sure it hasn't been crashed or flooded or had lemon type work done, like the same thing replaced multiple times. A good mechanic should also be able to run the Carfax and see if there are any outstanding issues that that car has been reported for, like the transmission's been replaced three times. So that kind of stuff, again, it's doing your homework. But yeah, it's a good marketplace. So is Facebook market. So those are two places if you're looking to buy a car in a third party has, you know, an independent person has the car that you want. It's definitely something doable. It probably just takes a little more homework. I love this conversation. I have to say, Scotty, you have so many great tips and the way that you present it, my blood pressure has just dropped about 20 points. Like <laughs> Thank during, you. <laughs> yeah, no, you're phenomenal. Two things. Tell us where we go to get all this great information. Do you have a newsletter? Do you have a mailing list? What do you want us to do to stay on top of the work that you're doing? We do have a mailing list, so you can go to A Girl's Guide to Cars and sign up for our newsletter. You can also just follow us on Facebook. We publish um, new content every day, and we always make that available across our social media platforms. Fantastic. And then the second one is a favor. We actually got a mailbag question that is right up your alley. Will you, will you stick around to answer it? Sure. All right. So we'll be back in just a moment with Scotty and Catherine and your mailbag.
So we are back with your mailbag. And Scotty, thank you for sticking around. Sure. So our first question today, it actually comes to us from a member of our Her Money Facebook group. And she writes, my car was recently flooded with Hurricane Ida. It has not started in a week and smells horrible. The hurricane was awful and people lost their lives and homes, so I'm trying to keep my situation in perspective. It's now been a couple of weeks and I don't even have an adjuster from insurance yet. My issue is that there was already a car shortage and now in the Northeast, hundreds of people who had flooded cars are all desperate for a car. Many lots have no inventory and they're pricing what they do have thousands over MSRP. I found a new car, but he charged me 3000 over MSRP, and I don't know how long he'll hold it for me. It could be weeks for insurance to total my car. Also, I was lucky to get a rental, but I am paying over the daily rate that the insurance will cover. Any suggestions? Anyone know a car lot with inventory? Should I lease to wait this out for two and three years and then buy when things are calmer? What do you think? So she's clearly studied the marketplace and knows what's going on, which is great because a lot of people don't know and they just walk in and just are plunked down the next five years of their income for whatever it is because they feel desperate. So she's doing her homework and I think that uh, there's some really good options. So it may be a while before an insurance adjuster gets to you unfortunately. And they're definitely, if your car has been flooded, they're going to total it. They can't sell those cars anymore. So they will go to the junkyards. So a couple of options. One, we were talking earlier about used cars. And honestly, I think if I were you, I would figure out what my budget would allow. And I would go on some of the used car sites that will deliver a car to you. So think about CarMax, Carvana, Room, any of these used sites will deliver a car to you. And depending on where the car has to come from, it's anywhere from $50 to about $800, which is a huge savings over that $3,000 premium that the dealer near you wants for that brand new car. So that would be a nice interim way. A nice thing about a used car You can either just pay cash for it or you can finance it for three years or something like that. And then when you're ready and when the car market evens out, you can just sell it and buy the car you want. Keep in mind that if you take a loan on a used car, you're going to pay all the interest on that loan. It's not like buying a house where your interest payments stop when you sell the house. With a car loan, your payoff statement will include all of that interest. So just keep that in mind. That might be a little bit of a penalty. You might end up paying you know, $500 or $1,000 more for that car because you're taking a loan. That's a car loan. Check with your bank. Your bank may have a different interest structure for you, and they may say, oh, no, when you, when you sell the car, when you pay off the loan, you stop paying the interest. So just depends on how you want to finance that. But make sure that you find the finance that fits. The other suggestion, if you decide that, nope, I really want a new car and I know what I want, shop across the country. Don't just shop in your region. But if you're in the Northeast, look in the Mid-Atlantic, look in as far out as like Pittsburgh or look in you know the Carolinas. Could you find that car and hop on a plane for $150, Uber to the dealership, sign the paperwork and drive it home? 
Well, absolutely. I've done that. I've done that a couple of times, actually. And for that very low price of an airline ticket, one-way airline ticket, you can actually get the car that you want and save that $3,000. So that would be my other suggestion. I love that. So creative. Scotty, again, thank you so much for doing this with us today. Well, thank you for having me. I love talking about this. Absolutely. We're going to have you back again. And Catherine Tuggle will join us for the rest of our mailbag. Hey, Catherine. Hey, Jean. How are you? I am good. I'm good. You know me. I love cars. I haven't typically loved the transaction of buying them, but I love the test drive. I like to drive. And I know that you really like to drive too. There were so many things. We are going to have to have her back because I didn't get a chance to get into electric cars. I didn't get a chance to get into maintenance. And I bet that our listeners are going to have a lot of additional car questions. So we'll have to get her back. Yeah, I would love to have her back and have her tackle some more listener questions. I was wondering whenever you were talking, what was your first car? (laughs) Well... The first car that I drove was my parents' car. We had a family car. It was an Oldsmobile Delta 88. And I actually had to sit on a phone book because, I mean, I, you know, when she talked about SUVs and why women love SUVs, I think we love SUVs because we're short. I mean, or shorter. And being able to feel as if you're not lower down than everybody else is advantageous. I mean, I don't drive an SUV anymore. I did for years. My wagon actually has a lever that pumps my seat up. So I feel a little bit taller in this particular car, but that's really important to me. If I can't see over the hood, I don't feel safe. Interesting. Yeah. As a tall girl, I still feel like I like SUVs. So that's interesting. I think it's just nice to have that kind of bird's eye view. I was interested to hear her say that Jeeps are affordable because I feel like Jeeps are not typically a car I would think of as affordable. I wonder if it's because they typically get really bad gas mileage. Oh, I don't know. I owned a Jeep for a while, not a Wrangler. I owned a Jeep Grand Cherokee or a Jeep Cherokee. It was maybe before they put the word grand in front of it. I loved that car. It was That was just a great, great car very boxy. I've had a range of cars. I've been mulling whether I should, at our house in New Jersey, I have a VW Bug. And it's 2013. They don't make them anymore. It's a convertible. It's a really fun beach car. I don't drive it anywhere except for in and around the beach because I don't feel as secure in it on the highway as I do in my station wagon. And I've been thinking maybe I should just get rid of it because I put maybe a thousand miles a year on it. And so it's kind of a, you know, it feels like a waste, but I kind of love it. So I'm on the fence. Yeah. I love you in that car. I remember when I first (laughs) saw you pull up in that car, I was like, oh my God, this is so your car. This is Jean's vehicle. Well, it's certainly, my son called it when I got it, he called it Malcolm which he said stands for Midlife Crisis Mobile. I love that so much. (laughs) All right. I know we have other questions. Let's do it. Yes. Our next question today comes to us from Megan. She writes, Hello, Jean and Catherine. First, thank you for the work you do. I grew up with wonderfully well-intentioned parents, but neither one of them taught me anything about investing or finances. 
Now, on the eve of my 37th birthday, after two months of diligently catching up on your entire Harmony podcast catalog, I feel like a new woman. I finally started saving for retirement and have opened my first investment account to get started. I spent most of my 20s and early 30s living frugally in a variety of jobs, changing landscapes every few years, and not giving much thought to my long-term goals. Now, I've finally settled down in a town I love, and I'm getting my financial life together for the first time. I'm a bit late to the party, I know. Here's the scoop. My husband and I just started saving for retirement. We both have around $1,000 in Roth IRAs, thanks to your Ultimate Guide to IRAs episode, and have started investing in an index fund through Fidelity. My husband is an immigrant, and so he is also starting from scratch when it comes to investing. We have $15,000 in an emergency fund, $16,000 in a high-yield savings account for a down payment for a house, and $1,000 in another high-yield account for a new car. I'm currently leasing a car, but I want to buy an affordable used car at the end of my lease. I'm about to start a new job that, along with my side hustle, will likely bring my earnings close to $100,000 a year, and my husband currently earns about $25,000 a year, which will likely go up within the next year. We own a small van conversion business that's still very hungry for capital. My employer will be offering a 4% matching 401k plan, which I plan to max out. Our expenses are about $5,000 a month, and I envision us being able to save almost half our income to go towards catching up on our retirement accounts and saving for both a down payment on a house and a new car. We have no credit card debt and no student loan debt. Our only debt is my leased car, which has another 19 months left on its contract. My question is, how would you recommend we split up our monthly savings? I've recently become interested in the FIRE movement after listening to your episode with Scott Rickens and realized we could be in a great position to retire early if we push hard and start saving and investing aggressively. However, I'm not sure how much we should put into our investments while we're also trying to save for a house. Ideally, we'd love to get into a house by mid-2023 at the latest, and we live in quite an expensive area. We'd need $100,000 plus for a down payment if we want to avoid private mortgage insurance. I'd love to be on track to retire early, but I also know how much I want to own a house soon. So, should we aggressively save for a house and worry about investing later? Or should we drip feed both retirement and investing accounts and savings until the down payment is saved up? I'd love any advice or thoughts you have on the topic, especially any tips as they relate to the FIRE movement. Thank you for educating me these last few months. Well, thank you so much for a lovely letter and congratulations on getting all of this together. I mean, you took on a lot. You're taking on all of your financial goals simultaneously. And so the first thing that I wanna tell you is that 37 is not that old. We hear, Catherine and I both, a lot from women in their mid-40s, even in their mid-50s, who feel like they are just starting. So I know it feels like you wanted to have started in your 20s, but really, you're doing great. And getting on board with these FIRE principles is going to allow you to make up ground so much more quickly than you might expect. For everybody who's listening who's not familiar with FIRE, FIRE stands for Financial Independence Retire Early. But a lot of people who are 
actively pursuing a FIRE lifestyle are much more focused on the financially independent part than they are on the retire early part. It sounds to me like you are one of those people. A lot of entrepreneurs fall into that bucket. And I hear what you're saying about a house. I hear how important to you that is. And I want to just acknowledge that although having a full 20% down payment will free you from PMI, you might want to consider paying PMI for a couple of years while you continue to put additional money toward the principal of your home in extra principal payments just to allow you to get into the house faster with a down payment of 10% or maybe 15%. So that's just something to put on the table. As far as where to put the money, I would take advantage of the match in your 401k. That is a natural And that's a very, very good place to start because as we've said on this show countless times, that is free money. I would grab the match in your 401k and then I'd probably, just to give yourself some additional flexibility because Roth assets can be used prior to retirement for things like the purchase of a first home, I'd take additional retirement money and I'd divert it toward the Roth. I'd also continue to put some money into that down payment. What I would like to see you do is sit down with a mortgage lender, knowing that you're not doing this this year, you're not doing this next year, you're doing it in 2023, and talk about programs that are available to first-time homebuyers in your state. Figure out what those down payment requirements are going to be. Figure out what it might cost you paying PMI versus not paying PMI, and get an additional sense of what your down payment really has to be. And then just do a calculation to back it out. So if you know that you want to buy a house by mid-2020, three, two years from now, 24 months, figure out what your down payment actually has to be divide that by 24, put that much into your cushion for your down payment, keep that in a savings account and make sure that you're putting away the rest for retirement. I mean, look, you are at saving 50% of your income over this year, over the next few years, and knowing that your income is going to continue to grow, I have no worries that you'll reach the retirement benchmarks that we talk about always on this show. And if you're looking for additional FIRE resources, let me just point you to a couple of the other podcast guests that we've had on the show. There's a podcast called Choose Fi or Choose F-I. We've had those guys on the show. They're fantastic. There is a woman named Jamila Souffrant. She does a podcast called Journey to Launch. She is big into fire. And I think the two of those together combined with Scott Rickens should really get you going. I hope that that's specific enough. And if it's not, Just send me another note and I'd be delighted to answer it. That's great advice. Thank you so much, Jean. Absolutely. Thank you, Catherine. And in today's Thrive, how not to get fired from your full-time job because of your side hustle. 
At some point over the last few years, were you inspired by an Insta-worthy screen printing t-shirt business or a woman who makes hand-sewn masks or purses and you thought to yourself, I could do that, and you did. Or maybe for the last decade, you've been doing social media consulting on the side or freelance blogging. Nearly 44 million U.S. workers are running some sort of a side hustle alongside their full-time job, according to Bankrate. Side hustles are great. They let us explore our passions and our creativity in a way that our full-time jobs often don't, and they are an important source of income. Sometimes the money we make from a side gig will be the very thing keeping our budgets afloat from month to month, and sometimes they become so lucrative that we are able to turn them into full-time positions. But Until we're ready to make that leap, we also don't want to risk losing our primary jobs by focusing too much on those side gigs. Typically, those full-time jobs will be where we have health benefits, retirement benefits, and financial security, things that we should never risk, no matter how passionate we are about our hustles. At HerMoney.com this week, we've got a rundown on how you can take your side gig to new heights while not putting your full-time job at risk. Here are a couple of our favorite tips. First, find a gig that doesn't compete. Many companies have very clear non-compete rules and the contracts that you may have signed before working there or in the employee handbook that you were given. Here's an example. If your full-time gig is working as a designer for all forms of clothing and accessories, you probably can't go out and start your own line of handbags while working there. Likewise, if you run social media for a healthcare brand, you're probably restricted from offering social media consulting to other companies in health, wellness, or in the medical space. Companies don't want their best people moonlighting in a way that takes their own trade secrets and uses them to someone else's advantage. So to be on the safe side, make sure your side hustle is always distinctly separate from your primary jobs industry. Then make sure you're only spending your own personal non-working time off hours on that side hustle. If you're getting paid to work your full-time job from nine to five, then that's all those hours can be used for, no exceptions. If you're answering emails or phone calls from customers to your side hustle during those hours, you're technically stealing from your company because you're using their time to benefit your other gig. And this is absolutely a fireable offense. And apart from the moral concerns of double timing things, it's stressful to try to juggle two jobs during the same hours of the day. Here's the fix. Set aside some dedicated time before or after work to pursue your side gig, early mornings, evenings, weekends, holidays, even your lunch break, as long as you're using a separate phone or computer, can be side gig time. Once you find your rhythm, your side gig flow will become second nature. Thank you so much for joining me today on Her Money. Thanks to Scotty Reese for sharing her insights on all things cars and automotive. I don't have a new car purchase in my future for a while, but I'm already feeling more positive and excited about the process than I was. If you like what you hear, I hope you'll subscribe to our show at Apple Podcasts. Leave us a review. We love hearing what you think. 
We'd like to thank our sponsor, Fidelity. We record this podcast out of CDM Sound Studios. Our music is provided by Video Helper, and our show comes to you through Megaphone. Thanks so much for joining us, and we'll talk soon. Mm-hmm.